Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So that was uh, Christmas in Hollis uh, by Run DMC. And uh, listen up, kids, because that is what rap used to sound like before NWA. Um, that, uh, that particular song um, I used to listen to, um, it was included in the uh, compilation Christmas CD, A Very Special Christmas, which um, actually ended up being a series of... Uh, of Christmas compilations, um, and the uh, the proceeds of it went to benefit the Special Olympics. 
Um, probably the series is still ongoing, but who the hell buys CDs anymore? So good luck with that. Um, we used to listen to this quite a lot when it came out. Um, so the, a lot of the songs on that, uh, on that record are kind of the soundtrack to my childhood Christmas. Um, and, you know, way back in the uh, middle and late eighties, my brother and I liked rap. Um, and we would always want to listen to that song. And my dad just effing hated it. Um, on the other hand, he got his own back when he made us listen to the Alabama Christmas album. So, you know, turnabout's fair play, I guess. Um, you may also recognize that song as it was featured in the film Die Hard. Now, um, Die Hard is one of those films that I think basically everybody with a penis is supposed to really, really like. Um, and I never saw it or at least saw the whole thing until I was like in my thirties. Um, I'd seen like clips of it and I knew the basic premise of it and stuff like that. Um, I just never got around to seeing it, um, until, I don't know, one, one day my, uh, my wife was like at her book club or violin or something. One of those things where I'm left on at home alone and I can watch whatever film I want. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to watch Die Hard. Everybody else watches Die Hard. I should watch it. And I think maybe because I didn't see it at a certain age, it probably didn't have the same impact. But, you know, I thought it was all right. You know, definitely has some really good uh, action sequences in it. And uh, then the next day I was at work and I was talking with one of my work colleagues who, you know, he has a penis. So he was a huge fan of Die Hard and he wanted to talk about how it was the greatest film ever. And I was like, no, yeah, it was it was all right. And then uh, he said, and he knew I speak, he knew I spoke German. So he's like, what did you think of uh, Alan Rickman's uh, accent? And I was like, wait a minute, was Alan Rickman supposed to be German? I thought Alan Rickman was playing a British person who moved to Germany and therefore became fluent in German. And while he was there, fell in with a international terrorist organization and rose through the ranks until he became one of the high ranking members of that terrorist organization. Um, I didn't realize he was actually supposed to be a German. And, you know, my friend's like, well, that's why his name is Hans Gruber. And it's like, well, in that case, the film is a complete utter failure, and I hate it. Thanks, I hate it. But I'm not here today to talk about Die Hard. I'm here to talk about Woodfall. Um, but before we get to Woodfall, we have a call-in, so let's uh, let's listen to that. Hey man, Eric Salzwittle calling in again. Loving the December podcast still. So this is in response to Colin's call-in about uh, the 3D6 stat where you kind of start talking about white box stats from 7 to 14. It's essentially the same number. Um, That's why I prefer roll under systems because I think it's unfair to um, lump a character that took that 14 and put it in their strength and have it equivalent to a character with a 7 um, when you're rolling like against like a DC or whatever where bonuses are involved. But my question is, why do you think those old systems had such a large space where there were no bonuses? Were they afraid that the bonuses would totally imbalance the game? Um, I'm just curious about that. Why not use a smaller scale, like a one through six stat system where you don't have such a wide space? Anyway, running out of time, I'll keep listening to the podcast. 
Thanks for that, Eric. Um, <clears throat> good points and uh, and good question. Um, I mean, I, I think I think regarding stats and how you use them, yeah, that's that's um, it's definitely a, if uh, if you're not going to use the stats, why have them at all and stuff? Um, and uh, a lot of people, I mean, I guess every every group and every game master and stuff like that, they all have to kind of decide how big a deal they want the actual stats to be you know, and, and, and kind of fine tune the mechanics, uh, uh, based on that. I mean, personally, when I run, when I run white box, um, uh, I run a game that has, that puts a, a big focus on the players, um, just narrating what they do and coming up with ideas. And, uh, I do, I, I'm, I'm into this resolving as much as I can through the character's own narration and as little as possible through dice rolling. Um, that's just, that's, that's a thing that I'm into doing right now. Maybe down the line, I'll get bored with that and want to go back to something that puts more of an emphasis on, um, on the character stats and therefore would, would want some mechanics that, you know, put, take the stats into, into account. Um, as far as why the stats are the way they are, probably the only person who could really answer that is uh, is Gary Gygax. Um, one thing that I I remember reading is that he didn't actually invent the six stats. Um, Dave Arneson's Blackmore game, which predates Dungeons and Dragons, which uh, Dave Arneson kind of demoed for Gary, and and that's that's kind of where where Dungeons and Dragons came from. Um, Dave Arneson's Blackmore game already used the stats, um, and and there were six of them, or maybe there were seven, and uh, they weren't absolutely identical to the stats that we now have in D anD D that have hardly changed in since 1974. But anybody who plays D anD D could look at um, a character sheet from uh, from Blackmore and see that is exact that it is the ancestor of uh, of the D anD D stat system. And that includes the kind of numbers that they had were, were not all that dissimilar. Um, so I don't remember now whether Dave Arneson used 3D6 to generate them or whether he generated them in some other way. The 3D6 thing, though, does sound very Gygaxian because um, if, uh, if anybody remembers reading his description of the bell curve in the Dungeon Master's Guide from 1st Edition, you know that Gary was really into the math behind uh how dice rolling worked and uh i would guess that if gary gygax wanted people to roll their stats on 3d6 that he wanted the bell curve to be a factor and that means that he probably wanted people to have most of their stats between 9 and 12 because that's this the statistical likelihood one of my uh my favorite things to show uh players who haven't played um, original Dungeons and Dragons before is the uh, the example of a character from the original uh, Men in Magic booklet from from 1974. Xylarthan um, the Magic User. His stats are Strength six, Intelligence eleven, Wisdom thirteen, Constitution twelve, Dexterity nine, Charisma eight. So he's not going to attract a lot of followers. Um, Notice that he's a magic user, but his highest score is wisdom. Now, um, one of the one of the main things that abilities 
give you in the original version of the game is a bonus to your XP. Um, and as a matter of fact, when they when they actually go through and list what uh, what the stats do, prime requisite of fifteen or more add ten percent to earned experience. Prime requisite of thirteen or fourteen add five percent to earn experience. Earned experience. Prime requisite of nine to twelve average, no bonus or penalty. And then seven or eight minus ten percent of your XP and six. Or less, minus 20. God, that's steep. Um, you get a plus one to each of your hit dies. So one extra hit point per hit die for a constitution of a, a 15 or more. Constitution 13 or 14 will withstand adversity. Now, what does that mean? Um, I've read this. I've read through this rule book so many times. I think... Will withstand adversity means that you have a 100% chance of surviving um, system shock, what would later become system shock, so like resurrection or getting turned back from stone and things like that. Because constitution 9 to 12, so that's the average range, <clears throat> is a 60 to 90% chance of surviving. It doesn't say what surviving is, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that what he meant was resurrection and um, polymorphing and, you know, all the things that you need to do a system shock test for. Um, I won't go through the whole thing. We'll go back to, uh, the Xylarthan thing, but, uh, but basically, yeah, Dex, you know, gives you a, a bonus to, to hit with missile fire, but it's just a measly plus one if your Dex is above 12. So if above average Dex gives you a plus one for missile fire and below nine, so below average Dex gives you ne negative one. And that's pretty much it. So your X, so you get more hit points and a better chance of surviving system shock for high constitution, or you get a bonus to your XP. And that's basically all that stats do. So the, the description of Xylarthan reads, This supposed player would have progressed faster as a cleric, but because of a personal preference for magic, opted for that class. I have this theory that Gary Gygax didn't like clerics, because the original order of stats strength intelligence wisdom that that's the order of the three character classes those are the, that's the order of the prime requisite for the three character classes in the original game and they are ordered they're not alphabetical so there's obviously a preference there they're ordered strength fighters intelligence magic users and wisdom clerics and it's pretty well documented that uh Gary Gygax's favorite fantasy character is Conan. So probably he preferred fighters. And one of his most famous characters that he played is, of course, Mordenkainen, the magic user. And I just, I have, the, I have this feeling that he didn't really like clerics and he didn't really like halflings. Because um, when he describes the halfling class, he says, like, should any should anybody wish to play one, this is what halflings do. It's like, well, I don't know why you'd want to be a halfling, but if you do, here's how it works. Um, anyways, but yeah, look at none of these, only one of these stats is above the average range, and uh, two of them are below it. And this is given as as an example character, you know. Like, for somebody who's never played this game before, this is the first version of the game, so it's the first game of its kind. And this is the example Gary Gygax holds up of a D&D &D player character. So I reckon 
originally, Gary Gygax didn't want the stats to have any major game mechanical function apart from uh, earned experience. And that the game as he originally envisaged it was probably your goal was to survive long enough to earn enough XP to reach the level where you're able to build a stronghold and then attract an army. And then presumably it would convert to a war game like the fantasy fantasy supplement of Chainmail. Because it's the original assumption that he had was that this game would appeal to war gamers. So uh, it, it turned out it appealed to a completely different type of gamer and created a, a different type of gamer. Um, and obviously the rest of the development of the of the game and the hobby in general, you know, moved farther and farther away from, from just straight up traditional uh, tabletop wargaming. But I reckon that, that, <clears throat> that originally he wanted you to have average stats because he wanted progress to reaching a stronghold to be slow. And, uh, and, it was only the the Greyhawk supplement is where you start getting like extra um, abilities for strong fighters. You know the percentile strength. If you have a strength of eighteen, you can roll percentile dice. If you have extraordinary strength and getting a bonus to damage and a bonus to attacks and a bonus to your bend bars and lift gates and things like that. And and then that also introduced the percentage chance to know spells for magic users if they had high intelligence and things like that and you know more and more they started making the stats do more and more and now we're used to stats having a function beyond just being this number i mean i guess the 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 main thing that stats did in the in the original game was they gave you more xp and they determined what character class you were probably going to choose because you had to do them in order, so. But yeah, I mean, you know, right right now I'm I'm into uh, not having stats do all that much, but in the past I've had a, you know, a more mainstream take on that, and obviously, you know, most editions apart from White Box find a way to make stats carry a bit more weight, and as long as they're there, you're gonna you know have them more weight. But it is kind of odd that you generate this number between three and eighteen, whose major function is to decide whether you get like a a single digit bonus or penalty to certain types of action. Why not just generate the the bonus or penalty? But you know, yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't make the rules, so. so. So that was probably a, a much more long-winded answer than you were anticipating. But now, on to what I was hoping to talk to, about today, which is Woodfall, a dark fantasy mini setting. So Woodfall is is a product. It's, basic, it's basically a mini hex crawl. And uh, it's by uh, Shane Walsh. That's uh, Walsh with an E at the end. I first came across this um, back when back in the days of when Google Plus existed, and uh, and Shane posted a, a few examples of his artwork, um, and announced that this was going to be featured in a forthcoming OSR mini campaign or mini hex crawl. 
um, and the Kickstarter would be released soon. And he included a link to uh, uh, the website for it, which at the time was mainly under construction, but it featured, again, some some sample artwork and an announcement that the Kickstarter would begin soon. And based on the artwork alone, I was already certain I was going to back this. And as soon as I saw that the Kickstarter was live, I backed it. Um, and I'm glad I did because the, uh, the PDFs, they dropped a, a couple weeks ago, beginning of the month, beginning of December. And the artwork is everything I hoped and expected it to be. And the content of the, the adventure, if you can call it that, the content itself has greatly exceeded my expectations. Uh, and this is not something I've heard anybody review yet or talk about yet. Um, so I just thought I would put this out there. If you're looking for something really cool to run, you need to check this out. It's available at DriveThruRPG. Um, so it's called Woodfall, W-O-O-D-F-A-L-L, all one word. It's, uh, I believe, $12 for the PDF. Um, it just blows my mind. So um, it was marketed primarily on its art, um, and it, the art is fantastic. It's all black and white. It's got a very – so it's dark fantasy. So it's not as gothic as like Ravenloft. Um, it's got a little bit of fairy taleishness about it. Um, just a, a really interesting tone. Um, there's just, there's some, there's some classic type of things in there, but then there's some transformations of them. So they have rust moths instead of just rust monsters. So imagine that flying rust monsters, um, a tombstone golem there. That was one of the sample artwork that I saw early on. So it's, it's, it's basically one of the things that's happened in this setting is that, a graveyard has vanished and what's happened is somebody's raised it as a tombstone golem. So there's a giant golem made of tombstones wandering around like, man, that's amazing. Um, owl wolves. So if you thought owl bears were bad, now we have owl wolves as well. There's mutants and, um, the, there's a, a mechanic for monsters that some monsters have some little orb inside them called a monster core. Not all of them have it, but some of them do. And if you can remove it, it can be a powerful spell component, and it also interacts with another type of of monster in there. There's just some stuff, some really creative stuff that I think will be a, a lot of fun to kind of bring out for your players. Um. Early on, there's some suggestions about running the game. Um, here's the section, playstyle. This hex crawl setting can be used with whatever playstyle you prefer, but I suggest trying out an old-school style of play where the following points are assumed to be true. And then there's a little bullet point list of OSR style play, which you know I think you could actually just show this list to people who are curious about the OSR and what it's like and what, what, what playing an OSR game would be like. Players will be setting their own goals rather than following a narrative that has been planned out for them by the Game Master. Players receive very little or no experience points from killing monsters, instead receiving experience from treasure. 
Monsters will not be balanced to player level, but the GM will communicate to players a rough idea of how safe or dangerous different areas are through NPCs. Wherever it would add more interest, players and Game Master will interact and describe gameplay to each other instead of rolling skill checks. The game is dangerous, player death is very possible, and healing is very limited. There is a focus on resource management. Resources are being tracked by the Game Master and players, and there are consequences for running out. Players coming up with clever and creative solutions to problems is encouraged and rewarded. I mean, I feel like I just want to print that out and just hand it to players and be like, this is kind of, these are the core assumptions of the play style of this game. There's a little graphic for how you would drop this mini setting into your wider campaign. Now, I just love the fact that he's put a graphic. So it kind of shows like a 3D map of the setting being dropped into a little hole and a bigger 3D map. And then having things like roads and rivers and stuff like that be connected to it so that you can kind of, you know, get a little visual clue of like, you know, this is how you would incorporate this into your own, into the world you're already running. And I mean, I just love that he's thought to do that, you know. I, I don't know, there's so many great ways that he's used art. But we're going to talk about art because I am not an artist and I have a mixed relationship with art in RPGs. And one of the things that I I dislike about RPG art is that often the players never get to see it. Um, people are probably aware that, uh, the incredible Dyson logos, um, has done all the maps for the, uh, Wizards of the Coast, um, Dragon Heist adventure. Um, we all, we all in the OSR love Dyson logos. He's amazing. And he's given so much to the community by making his maps, you know, free under the creative commons license. Um, I, I've basically stopped <laughs> creating maps of my own and just, I just basically, if there's something I need to run, I just, you know, scroll through his website and see if there's something that, you know, he's already done that's good or that will fit, you know, the, the kind of area because his maps are just so damn good. Like, why, why should I make a mediocre map when I could use his good map? But some people who aren't already familiar with his work, um, when they've been reviewing Dragon Heist, have been surprised because the maps are right in his core style. They're black and white. You know, they look hand-drawn. Well, they are hand-drawn, you know. And, uh, and that's not how Wizards of the Coast maps have been in any of their previous adventures. And some people have been really confused and surprised by that. And even if I didn't know that they were Dyson Logos maps and know who Dyson Logos was, I doubt I would have cared that they were black and white hand-drawn maps because you look at these maps and the players are never going to see them unless, well, they're going to see them as you draw them on a grid, you know, in your shaky hand with your dry erase marker. And you know, they're not going to get any of that great artwork. You know, the maps have always been beautiful, you know, but you're the only one who sees them. And you got to think you have a typical group of four players in one DM, you know, only 20, only 20% of your audience are, 
going to see this artwork. And, you know, it's, it's the same with monster illustrations. You know, you're trying to describe a unique monster, either something that's kind of rare in the monster manual that players don't see a lot or something that the designer created specifically for this adventure. But because it's really difficult to get layout um, to, to work exactly the way you want it, they can't always divorce the monster illustration from its stat mm-hmm. blocks. So, you know, you're either going to have to just not show them the art and try to describe it. And however good you are at describing art, you know, when they say a picture is worth a thousand words, it's actually worth a lot more than that. You know, there is no there is no possible way that you can describe in words something that, you know, some artist has taken a lot of time to to visually realize that the image is always going to be more powerful. And I say that as a writer, you know, I fully understand and admit that images are more powerful in communicating than words are. And, you know, so then you're either going to not show them the illustration or you're going to like awkwardly try to cover up the stat block so that when you show them the picture, they don't crane their necks over and see what, what it's resistant to and weird stuff like that. And all this stuff is just, it's just BS, you know, and there's other little things, subtler things like just pictures of the surrounding area and stuff like that. Nice, beautiful, evocative art. Wizards of the Coast have always got really good artists to to illustrate their their books. But who gets to see it? Unless it's in the player's handbook, you know, only the game master gets to see it. And uh, in this book, in in this Woodfall, Shane Walsh has basically he's he's done so many of these things as full page illustrations that you can print out or show to your players without any spoilers. So when they enter Woodfall, there's a, there's a full page illustration of like, like a coming over a hill and looking down into the village. You can just show them this and they can kind of get, they can get the artist's vi- uh, vision of this unique town, which is built on a swamp and connected by a lot of bridges. Um, you just show them that you can, you know, describe it as well but it's like here this is what you see as you come over you know over the hill and look down on woodfall um one of my favorite full page art illustrations is there's a there's a shop that sells magic masks and all the masks are described but before that there's a full page illustration of the mask shop where you can see the person who sells the mask and the little table they sit at and you know the the rickety wooden shelves and everything and and the moon through the window but also every single mask described in the adventure is illustrated accurately in that picture so you can again print out this picture and show them if they want to go in the mask shop and shop for masks this is the mask shop and then they can point to a mask and role play asking the shopkeeper what each mask is, does and what it's for without you having to do a lot of weird page flipping or covering up things because, you know, these masks all have special properties and some of them, I mean, there's no guidance over how much you reveal about the mask's power to your character or prices. That's all left to you, but you know, you're probably not going to want to just give them the full description. You're going to want to maybe suggest what it might do. And leave a little bit vague so that they can decide whether they want to risk trying to use it 
Most of them have some kind of a limitation or drawback. But I just love that. I think this would be this would be so useful, and it's such an evocative drawing as well. But I mean, I counted them all out. All the masks are there. So this is this picture. Just print it out, show it to your players, and they can role play the entire encounter in the mask shop and any shopping they want to do in there. There's a similar thing for the uh, the inn of the town. There's you know a, a full page illustration of the crooked inn. Um, and it actually, there's no, um, there's a text in italics, which is kind of the equivalent of box text if you want to describe it to your players, but the illustration of the Crooked Inn exactly matches everything that's in the box text. So you might as well just briefly paraphrase that and then just show them the picture. Um, I'm just so grateful as a game master to somebody who who is who has done this um because i just i really hate looking at great evocative art and knowing that i'm never going to be able to show it to the players you know i feel like what's i mean obviously i like looking at it but i just feel like it's such a shame that only one person at the table gets to see it um so this is just a this is just amazing stuff. Um the setting itself is something that I haven't seen before. It's basically so Woodfall is a little village on the swamp run by witches and magic users and it's basically a communist commune. Um there's a spell sharing society, so a bunch of wizards periodically meet and they have a collective spell book. And anybody can copy a spell out of that spell book into their own, and anybody can copy a spell of theirs into the spell book. They also have workshops on how to make magic items, but they don't repeat those those workshops or write anything down. So you, if you wanted to make a certain magic item, you would definitely have to show up when they're doing it. And if you missed it, well, you're out of luck. But the the spell book is for use anytime. So this could be a cool way to uh to get some new spells if you're a magic user um you do have to join the magic user shop there's a thieves guild but the thieves guild itself is is a communist as well and so they will give you jobs and your earnings part of it goes to uh like the healing tent um, which gives high-level healing for free to anybody who lives in the area. Um, there's a fairy liberation front, and they do, they they give some money to that. Um, they give some money to local taxes, so they they help they help support the town through taxes. And this is the thieves' guild. Basically, you get like forty percent of your earnings, and the rest of it, ten percent goes to the thieves' guild, and then the rest of it goes in ten percent chunks to various uh, causes throughout the town. So it's a really, it's a different, it's a different way of running D and D because so much about D and D is about the acquisition of treasure and personal gain, and this puts a totally different spin on it because it's essentially a communist commune. Um, it's also uh, there's there's a there's a feminist stream going through it. For instance, uh, Shane has has been very careful about pronouns throughout the writing of the book, but also I mean, um, it's run by witches, so 
it has a good gender balance in terms of the 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 structure of the town and who holds power in it. There's um there's essentially a a women's shelter. So women who who have been uh, oppressed or abused in the local area can run away to Woodfall and get shelter. That's one of the things the Thieves Guild contributes to. Um, and they'll be trained to be witches while they're there. So, you know, there's that. Um, and then that's that's just Woodfall. Then there's the swamp area with lots of unique things. There, there's there's a the there's a necromancers a necromancers faction that um used to they used to live in Woodfall and then some of them had more radical ideas so they split off and, and they started their own group and they're raising an army of the dead to cause effectively like uh, like more probably more of a of a Leninist kind of revolution, you know, like, like a kind of red October thing going on. And they, they want to use the undead as foot soldiers in their army. And they also want to raise undead, um, to do all the menial tasks and stuff like that. Um, so they're, they're like, they're a bit more extreme and militaristic than the communists of Woodfall. Then there's like, there's a weird gob the spike goblin tribe and they have a uh headquarters um I, i'm not going to list every single thing that's in this um because there's so much and we'd be here all night but you can go out exploring the woods and the swamp and things like that in traditional hex crawl fashion there's lots of adventure hooks and things like that um there's a a troll who's actually just really lonely and you could run that whole thing as a role-playing encounter. I mean, you could fight the troll if you want to, but if you actually just talk to the troll, you might end up getting a good ally. There are these things called weepers and they all have a hole in their chest. And if you put a monster core in them, um, that kind of completes them. And then you get like, um, you get some help from them. Yeah, the Revolutionary Corpse Council. That's the uh, those are the necromancers who are starting a communist revolution. And there, there's basically a whole um, there's a description of their military military organization. They're the ones who control the tombstone golem as well. So one of the things you could do is either join them or fight them. And their dungeon is detailed. Um. There's the bog witches, and uh, they're pretty nasty. And they have they they've taken over this old mansion, and that's detailed. There's a there's a few different evil religious cults. There's some soldiers who are trying to shut down Woodfall and evict everybody from it. So there's lots of different uh, factions. There's some monsters who have escaped from a dungeon, which is the dungeon's been overtaken by the Revolutionary Corpse Council, and they force the monsters out. So now there's these homeless monsters, and um, they don't immediately attack because they're just kind of like, oh, what are we going to do? But each each monster has their own ideas about um, what their next move should be, and some of them are a little bit more aggressive and some of them are not. There's swamp people who live under the water, um there's just all there's just so much amazing stuff in here 
And like I said, all the artwork is great and evocative and unique and individual. And so much of it you can actually show to your players because Shane's taken really good care to make sure that there are um, usable pieces of art that, that are not on the same page as sensitive information. You know, basically he's, he's made a lot of really great evocative spoiler free art. Another thing that I really like about this is that he's put out some basically recipes for crafting magic items. Um, so if you want to do magical research, he's basically got this, uh, this concept that every magic item or potion or something, they, they need um, a base, an active ingredient, and something to bind the two together. So that's, that's your basic potion, is a base ingredient, a magically active ingredient, and, and something that binds them together. So um, Hill Giant Tears is the active ingredient, um, and then there's basically a random table you can rule these things off of, um, and you can bind it with uh, ginger tea, or the base would be ginger tea, and then the binder will be um, a slime mushroom. Or fairy dust is the active ingredient, the base is goblin blood, and the binder is a banana, presumably pureed. And there's variations on that to make like a wand. So you need a magic type of wood, a heart string of some sort, and some kind of power gem. Or to make a magic scroll, you need a quill and a scroll and magic ink, and magic ink has to be made according to one of the recipes. But it's it's some it's a it's a a pretty simple but effective way of running and ruling how you would craft magic items and magic potions without it being it's not too prescriptive for instance there's no specific recipes given you can just uh you can just roll randomly on this table or once you get the hang of it you could probably just make your own stuff up um and there's there's descriptions of the different types of of uh, magic tree there's descriptions of the orbs and stuff that you find when you cut open certain types of monsters there's descriptions of magical plants and stuff that are unique some of them that i really like um beast leaf so beast leaf it's kind of like catnip but for monsters wild beast and monster behavior is altered when they come into close contact with this plant it's hard to find this plant um but if you do find it that could be very useful in some random encounters because it could effectively stop uh, wild animals and monsters from attacking you. Another one I really like is the soul flower. So the soul flower um, traps the souls of the recently departed and you can use it in order to communicate with them. Um, and they they grow basically at sites where people died with unfinished business. And then uh, at the end of this, because obviously it's a, it's like they said a hex crawl. There's no real story. Um, there's there's a description of a lot of areas and the people, the the creatures who live there and their goals. And there's a great chart that shows how each kind of faction within this this world interacts with every other faction. So if you're ever running uh, certain types of encounters, you can consult that chart to to, to determine how. Uh, how the different factions will react to each other. But at the end, there is a description of 
things that will probably happen on a long enough timeline. Um, things that, that each of these uh, factions are doing, they will probably come into fruition. You know, the, uh, the goblin spore device is completed because they're, they're, they're wor- worshipping some magic spore thing. The, uh, the Revolutionary Corpse Council continues to gain power. So these are things that will, will be happening if the player characters don't um, interfere with them. So if, you're, if you've been running this for a while, you, know, you can keep those eventualities in mind, but you know, hopefully your players will throw spanners in some of these. There are some village event ideas, Bonfire Night... Um, an eviction attempt because a, a big part of this uh, setting is that the uh, the local um, monarch, the referred to as the king, and you just replace this with any king or authority figure in your setting, knows about Woodfall and is trying to get rid of them. So, at some point, they might send soldiers in to try to evict everybody from Woodfall. Um, a sickness could sweep through town. Um, there's something called the Grand Squatters Tournament, which is an annual tournament where residents compete in a in a rickety temporary arena for the chance to be crowned the nobility of Woodfall and enjoy bragging rights for the rest of the year. It's basically uh, a fun, non-lethal uh, combat. That just could be, you know, a great way to run some some fun, non-lethal combat and you know, develop your characters or develop some NPCs, maybe get some people to, you know, make, make some allies or make some enemies. Then there's a homemade uh, character sheet at the end, which, you know, looks great, just like the rest of the book. So if you like artwork, you will probably like this. Um, and uh, the content is just as good as, as, as the artwork itself. Um, I, I almost don't want to say this because I don't want to jinx it, but I'm hoping to run this for my family over the Christmas holiday while we're all home, just because it's so fun and quirky. And, uh, I mean, I, I love the way that it's changed the way that, you know, changed some of the, the classic assumptions of D&D. I love how it's put different spins on some of the monsters. I love some of the unique monsters. I love the way magic research works. I just I just think it would be so unexpected to wander into this little village and find it working the way it is. And you know, you can see how see do your characters look on it favorably? Do they go, "Hey, this is a good place. We should like we should settle down here and and you know, help these people out." Or would they be like, "This place is weird. They're all commies, you know." You could join the soldiers and the king in trying to evict them or join one of the other weird cults around. Um, or just go hunting for monsters and sell their parts to the witches of Woodfall because they will pay a lot of money for that since they need it to make healing potions and things like that. Um, I don't know. I just, I've, I've been really impressed by it, really amazed by it. Um, I can't remember what I paid to back it, but... Um, it's probably on a par with what they're charging on drive through RPG, in which case I'm going to say it's possibly the best 12 bucks I've spent all year on a gaming product. Um, and like, yeah, I haven't heard anybody talk about this yet. Um, but 
I have I have like literally no criticism of it whatsoever. It's just an amazing piece of work, and I am so glad that I backed it. Um, just just reading it alone has been so entertaining, and I just can't wait to put some of this stuff into play at the table. Um, so I really really hope that I haven't jinxed myself and that I do get a chance to run some of this. Um, if not, I'm going to drop it into my white box campaign at my friendly local game store and see if I can get my adult players to, uh, mess around in it and we'll see. But yeah, if you ever want to play, um, dark fairy tale, Tim Burton-esque, uh, communist Dungeons and Dragons, then you should really give this a shot. Um, you know, give it a shot even if you're a capitalist. It's just it's it's just so fun and so imaginative and I just I mean I'm I'm just so blown away and impressed by this. So yeah, if you're looking for something to run and if you're looking for a Christmas present for yourself, um you need to check this one out. So coming up on the hour mark, um so that's <clears throat> way, way more gushing about this product uh, than I initially intended. I, I keep imagining that I'm going to do these uh, succinct and clear and to-the-point reviews, and they never come out that way. So uh, I'm going to wrap this up, but like I said, you really need to check this out. Woodfall by Shane Walsh. It's on RPG. And uh, that about wraps it up for me. So uh, until next time, play well and let the dice fall where they may.